Um, <clears throat> all right. So we are in uh, the middle of the summer. For those of you guys who've been hanging around Seven Hills for very long, you know that we have essentially two different churches. We have one church that sort of exists nine months of the year or maybe eight months of the year when very shorter, you know, faculty staff and, uh, you know, college people are here. And then we've got the summertime version of Seven Hills Fellowship, which is apparently you guys because you're here today. So I'm thankful that you all are here, but two different churches. And uh, so a lot of times in the summer, instead of doing a big series, I'll just, you know, do what I call little patch sermons to fill in some blanks here and there. This week I'm preaching. Uh, I'm actually going to be preaching from Zephaniah chapter 3, and so if you want to, you can go ahead and turn there in your Bibles. Um, if not, you can follow along. It'll be up on the screen. And, uh, and so um, before I jump in and start reading Zephaniah chapter 3, let me give you a little bit of context. Um, first, this was written about 26, 2700 years ago, and it was really written to the, the, uh, the kingdom of Judah. By this point in time, uh, the, the kingdoms had been split, split in half, so Israel uh, was separate into the northern kingdom, Judah into the southern kingdom. And really, a, a lot of the story of that was idolatry and turning their back on God. And so uh, the kingdom of Israel had already fallen. The kingdom of Judah remained, but the kingdom of Judah began to turn their backs on God. And as a result, there was punishment coming. Uh, the Babylonians had arisen and would defeat the Assyrians, and they were on their way ultimately to Jerusalem. And so the people. Uh, of Judah that lived in Jerusalem were terrified by this oncoming threat. And so Zephaniah writes this, uh, this book, or God speaks through Zephaniah, to the people of Judah. Um, here's what's interesting, a couple other things really quickly. Um, the name of Zephaniah is kind of fascinating. The, the real literal technical definition means the Lord has concealed. The Lord has concealed, or the Lord has hidden. And what that means isn't um, that God has sort of hidden you because he's ashamed of you. Rather, it means that God has hidden you because he's seeking to protect you. And so what would happen is in that day, there weren't banks. Uh, So what people would do is they would dig a hole in the ground, usually under their tent, and they would put their most valuable things in that hole, and and they would hide them and bury them. Part of what Zephaniah's name means is that God, our Lord, hides you. And of course, as we look into the New Testament, we realize that we're actually hidden in Christ. And so the, the narrative of Zephaniah has to do with this oncoming judgment from Babylon, the disobedience of the people of Judah, but this hope that we can be hidden in God. So let me uh, start us off by praying, and then we'll jump in. Let's take a moment. Father, thank you very much um, for this morning. Thank you for each of the people that are here today. I thank you that um, despite uh, our emotional states our spiritual states, our relational states, our physical states, that you um, are reaching out to us, that you are pursuing us because you want to have a relationship with us. Father, we see that not only in your Holy Spirit as we see Jesus talking to Nicodemus and Jesus saying that the Holy Spirit will blow where he will, but we also see it in Jesus as he says that he comes and came in order to seek and to save the lost. And Father, we admit that is absolutely us. And so Father, I believe this morning that you're reaching out, drawing us into a relationship with you, some of us for the first time, uh, but Father, some of us simply need to be wooed back to believe um, in a God who loves us and is for us and who cares for us uh, and would do anything in order to bring us into a relationship with himself. I pray all these things in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ, amen. So I'm going to start off this morning with a little illustration um, from uh, uh, Harry Potter 
So I don't know where you guys are on the spectrum of what you think about Harry Potter. Um, you know, some people uh, look at Harry Potter and they're like, hey, you know, it talks about witchcraft and all these other things. That's bad. You probably need to avoid it. Um, other people say, hey, it's not all that different from C.S. Lewis and Tolkien, who are you know, both believers. Interestingly enough, um, J.K. Rowling, the woman that wrote Harry Potter, actually after the book came out, basically said, hey, this is actually an allegory of Christ. And so um, e- e- either way, regardless of where you guys stand on this, um, I would ask you to listen to this little illustration that I'm going to give you today because it's going to do a good job, I think, of setting up what we're talking about today. Um, so I'm in a book this morning uh, called Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows. And uh, the scene that I'm getting ready to read is where Harry Potter is going to have to go face Voldemort, who's the ultimate bad guy, if you guys know the story. And Harry's pretty sure that he's going to his death. But he runs into some unexpected help. Uh, Let me begin uh, by reading uh, a little bit about Harry, his fear, and his movement uh, towards that fear because of the courage that he gains from some loved ones. Less substantial than living bodies, but much more than ghosts, they move towards him, and on each, each face, there was the same loving smile. James, his father, was exactly the same height as Harry. This is his, uh, his ghost, essentially. So James, his father, was exactly the same height as Harry. He was wearing the clothes in which he had died, and his hair was untidy and ruffled, and his glasses were a little bit lopsided like Mr. Weasley's. Sirius, his godfather, was tall and handsome, and younger by far than Harry had seen him in life. He loped with an easy grace, his hands in his pockets and a grin on his face. Lupin was younger too and much less shabby and his hair was thicker and darker. He looked happy to be back in the familiar place, the scene of so many of his adolescent wanderings. This is the forest outside uh, the school. Lily, his mother's smile... was the widest of all. She pushed her long hair back as she drew close to him, and her green eyes, so like his, searched his face hungrily, as though she'd never be able to look at him enough. She said, you've been so brave. Harry couldn't speak. His eyes feasted on her. And he thought that he would like to stand and look at her forever, and that that would just be enough. You're nearly there, said his dad, very close. And we're so proud of you. Harry responded, does it hurt? Meaning, does does death hurt? The childish question had fallen from Harry's lips before he could stop it. Dying? Not at all, said Sirius, quicker and easier than falling asleep. And Voldemort wanted to be quick. He wants it over. A chilly breeze that seemed to emanate from the heart of the forest lifted the hair at Harry's brow. He knew they would not tell him to go, and it would have to be his decision. He asked them, he said, you'll stay with me until the very end, said his father. They won't be able to see you, asked Harry. We're part of you, said Sirius, invisible to everyone else. Harry then looked at his mother, stay close to me. Stay close to me, he said quietly. Beside him, making scarcely a sound, walked James, his father, Sirius Lupin, and Lilia's mother. And their presence was his courage 
and the reason he was able to keep putting one foot in front of the other. So clearly there's this story of Harry, this young man, going to face this thing that was almost definitely going to mean his destruction and even his death, and he was terrified. But ultimately, what gave him strength was knowing that his parents were with him. And not only that they were with him, but they delighted in him. That's what we see here in Zephaniah chapter 3, verses 1 through 4, and we're going to look at 8 through 17 as well. It's what Brittany read earlier today. It's this idea that, that here the Babylonians are coming. They're getting ready to destroy uh, Judah, the city of Jerusalem. God's allowing them to come and to punish his people, and it's their sin. I mean, they're the ones that have rebelled and turned against God. But yet God in the midst of this says, to those of you who are meek and humble and who trust in me, I will delight in you. I will be with you. I will save you. Let's jump into Zephaniah chapter 3 at the very beginning. Now including a little bit of wider section of verses just to give some context. In verse 1 it says, woe to the city of oppressors, rebellious and defiled. That's Jerusalem. She obeys no one. She accepts no correction. She does not trust in the Lord. She does not draw near to her God. And so there's just a list of sins here in this, this uh, one verse alone. Yeah, they're disobedient. They refuse correction. They don't trust in the Lord. They don't draw near to God. They've been rebellious. And as a result, they're defiled, right? This ought to resonate with us because each of us in this room are guilty of these same sins in relation to God as well. Verse 3. Her officials within her are roaring lions. Her rulers are evening wolves who leave nothing for the morning. In other words, your leaders are corrupt. They take everything for themselves. That also sounds a little familiar, unless we think we wouldn't be guilty of the same thing. Remember, we're worse than we think we are. Verse 4, her prophets are unprincipled. They're treacherous people. Her priests profane the sanctuary and do violence to the law, and so their prophets even lack integrity. In regards to worship and to the law, their priests also are disingenuous and self-serving. On to verse 8. Here's what God says. Therefore, wait for me, declares the Lord, for the day I will stand up to testify. I've decided to assemble the nations, to gather the kingdoms and pour out my wrath on them, all my fierce anger. The whole world will be consumed by the fire of my jealous anger. Then I will purify the lips of the people's. And all of them may call, that all of them may call on the name of the Lord and serve him shoulder to shoulder. From beyond the rivers of Cush, my worshipers, my scattered people will bring me offerings. That's us, by the way, those of us who are sitting in fellow, Seven Hills Fellowship in Rome, Georgia, thousands and thousands of miles away from Jerusalem. We're the ones, we're the foreigners who have been brought in to worship God. Verse 11, on that day, you, Jerusalem, will not be put to shame for all the wrongs you've done to me, because I will remove from you your arrogant boasters. Never again will you be haughty on my holy hill. So the leaders, the prophets, the people of Jerusalem, all of whom have been corrupt, they've been prideful, they've been arrogant, they've been boastful, they've all sinned with a high hand, but there's good news coming. Verse 12, but I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. They will do no wrong. They will tell no lies. A deceitful tongue will not be found in their mouths. They will eat and lie down, and no one will make them afraid. No deceit, no threat, no fear. God will purify his people. 14, sing, daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, Israel. Be glad and rejoice with all your heart, daughter Jerusalem. The Lord has taken away your punishment. 
He has turned back your enemy. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. On that day, they will say to Jerusalem, do not fear Zion. Do not let your hands hang limp. The Lord your God is with you, the mighty warrior who saves. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, but will rejoice over you with singing. So what do we take away from this passage? The truth is, anybody who just paid attention to what I just read realizes there's seven or eight sermons in this one particular passage. So I'm only going to really focus on a couple different things. And the primary idea here is that though troubles will come, that's to all of us, Troubles will come, suffering will come, right? It is inevitable. It's maybe the truest thing in the human existence that there is suffering, there is pain, there's death. Though troubles will come, there's hope for those who humbly trust in God. Though troubles will come, there's hope for those who humbly trust in God. Really the first point that we see today is that God is with the meek and the humble who trust in him. That God is with the meek and the humble who trust in him. Look at verse 12 and following. But I will leave within you the meek and humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. The Lord, the King of Israel, is with you. Never again will you fear any harm. Why does God promise with us throughout the scriptures so much to be with us, to be with us, to be with us? Why is that always on the lips of the prophets and the priests? Why is it on the lips of the the people that wrote in the New Testament? Because the presence of God is actually our deepest need. It's the presence of God from which we have been wrenched apart. So we read in Genesis. And so what happens is everyone realizes that that's my deepest need is to be with him, for him to be with me. Moses knew that. Uh, He knew that his need of God, he knew that his fullness and his strength came from the fact that God was with him. In Exodus chapter 33, God commands uh, Moses to go and to keep moving towards the promised land And Moses responds by saying this, then Moses said to him, if your presence does not go with us, do not send us up from here. In other words, Moses said, I'm not going anywhere unless you promise to be with me. I'm not going anywhere unless you promise to go with me. What what would it be like for us as believers to basically say, I'm not leaving my house this morning unless you go with me. I'm not going to work today unless you go with me. I'm not going to parent my children today unless you go with me. I'm not going to spend time with my husband unless you go with me. Moses says, I'm not going anywhere unless you go with me. It's my deepest need. It's your deepest need. Psalm 139, David is in the midst of this dark night of the soul. We don't know exactly what was going on. We don't know if it's when Absalom had died. We don't know if it's after he found out, you know, been found out to have an affair with Bathsheba. We don't know if it's, you know, we don't know what the circumstances were. But it was a dark night of the soul, and here's what David says in Psalm 139. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me, your right hand will hold me fast. If I say, surely the darkness will hide me and the light become night around me, even the darkness will not be dark to you, The night will shine like the day, for darkness is as light to you. How precious to me are your thoughts, God. How vast is the sum of them. Were I to count them, they would outnumber the grains of the sand. And when I awake, I'm still with you. When I was about 12, um, I thought I had committed the unforgivable sin. I went to Christian school. 
And uh, somehow one of my teachers talked about the unforgivable sin. I was like, what's that? And very quickly, I was certain that I had done it. And so I went through this little period of being terrified. And, uh, and it was actually a funny little, funny, I say that, it was a horrible little depression for like a 12-year-old to go through. And, uh, and I was, you know, probably a pretty relatively sensitive um, kid spiritually when I was that young. And, uh, and I remember at night reading through my Bible, and I had this red King James Version Bible. That's what I was reading. And, uh, and I remember reading Psalm 139, and I got to this part of saying, you know, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from a, your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you're there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. In the NIV, I mean, sorry, in the King James, it said, if I make my bed in hell or Sheol, you're there. And I literally, as a kid, remember starting to cry, and I went into my parents' room. They were already in bed, and I they probably thought I was nuts, but I went in there and I said, even if I go to hell, God is with me. And as a 12-year-old, what I understood was that my deepest need was to be with God wherever I happened to be, wherever he took me. And that's what David finds strength in too. He says, even the darkness won't hide me. When I awake, I'm still with you. Jesus also needed to know that his father was with him. There's a point at which Jesus, several points at which Jesus realized the disciples were going to flee. They were going to scatter. In John chapter 16, he says this, Do you now believe, Jesus replied. And then he goes on to say, A time is coming, and in fact has come, when you will be scattered, each to your own home. You will leave me all alone. Yet I'm not alone, for for my Father is with me. How strange is it? That Jesus, in his humanity and in his divinity, his deepest need also was to know that his Father was with him. In other words, what he was saying to the disciples is, oh, man, this is gonna, a tough time is on the way. You guys are all going to leave me, but I'll be okay because my Father is with me. And that's what really matters. How many of you today need to be reminded that God is with you, right? the humble, the meek, those who trust in the Lord. God is with you, not the perfect, as Brittany eloquently pointed out this morning. At no point uh, has God ever thought that we were going to be able to attain perfection, right? It's, it's, it's why he promised a Savior early on, a substitute, a Redeemer. And so what God wants to tell you today is that if you are trusting in him, that he is with you. Does your world just feel like it's falling apart? God is with you. Are you facing something that seems like it's going to overcome you? God is with you. Do you feel isolated and alone? God says, I am with you. We all need to hear that. Second thing we see in this passage today is that not only um, does God promise to be with the meek and the humble who trust in him, but God delights in the meek and the humble who trust in him. Look at verse uh, 12, and we'll jump back into some more verses here. But I will leave within you the meek and the humble. The remnant of Israel will trust in the name of the Lord. The Lord your God is in your midst, a mighty one who will save. He will rejoice over you with gladness. He will quiet you by his love. He will exult over you with loud singing. So for this section, I switched from the NIV to the ESV because the translation of the ESV is a little more literal. It's a little more wooden sometimes too. And God says several things in these verses to his people who are facing this incredibly hard thing that's on the way. He reiterates that he's with them and that he will save them. But I want to draw your attention to the last thing, three things that he says. The first thing he says is he says that God or I delight in you. 
The NIV says he will delight over you. The ESV says he will rejoice over you with gladness. The, the translation, they both mean the same thing, but the idea is that God looks down at you with a delight in his eyes. Is that the God, Brittany, is that the God that you knew in junior high and high school? Probably not. It's not the God that I knew when I was growing up either. I, I thought God had long gray hair and a hammer like Thor. And he had a trigger finger. It was just, I was going to get crushed, right? And yet what we're told here is like a parent, God looks down on those who trust in him and he delights over us. He will rejoice over you with gladness. Um, I'm going to owe my kids some money because I'm going to talk about them today. Sorry, guys. Uh, you know, Levi is our youngest. He's 13. And um, he was probably the easiest baby we had. Like, it was awesome. We had this little swing in our side yard in Atlanta when he was just born. And we could put him out there in the swing, and he was just like a little ball of Play-Doh. I mean, he just would sit there with a big grin on his face for about three hours. We could just do whatever. We could mow. We could plant bushes. We could play with the other kids. And Levi just sat there with a big smile on his face, happy as could be. And it was very easy as a father and as a mother to look at Levi and just to smile because he was just the happiest little dude. And at night, we'd put him in his crib, and he just was happy to be in his crib. And again, we would look at him with the light in our faces. We would just be happy whenever we looked at him. That's that's what God says he's doing to those of us who trust in him, the meek and the humble who trust in him. It says he delights over you. It means like a parent, he looks at you with a smile on his face. That's why the benediction that I give at the end of every service is the Aaronic blessing. And God tells Aaron, I want you to pronounce this over the people. Here's what it says. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you. That's actually a euphemism which says, remind people that my face, that I'm smiling at them. Right, And even the last section, it says, the Lord turns his face towards you, and may he give you his peace. In other words, he's not like a parent with a frown, with an angry scowl. He's not like a parent who's turned his face away, but he's a face in disgust or disappointment. But rather, he's a parent who looks at us with a smile on his face. That's the God that we're being told about here. It's the God that Jesus revealed to us. How many of you today need to hear that God smiles upon you? For those of you who trust in Jesus, that God smiles upon you, that he delights in you, that he rejoices over you. This is great news, right? It's great news. The second thing that we see in this little section is that God quiets you with his love. And I don't need to read that in the NIV or the ESV because it says the same thing in both, but basically God quiets you with his love. When we were living in Atlanta also, um, we had a little pool in the neighborhood there, and Sam was three, May would have been one or a little bit less, but we would go to the pool th twice a day. Krista would take the kids when I was at work, and then when I got home, we'd take them back. But Sam, who was three at the time, had this little floaty thing that was a rubber tube that went around his midsection, but it had like almost like a built-in underwear you stick their feet through. And so we had some friends in from out of town. We were hanging out at the pool, and we were taking Sam. I would put his buns in my right hand, and I would kind of hold his chest, and I would kind of launch him into the air in the pool, and he'd go flying through the air, and he'd splash down his little floaty, and it was fun. We did it over and over and over again until one time I got a little too aggressive, and I went to sort of throw him through the air, and he went like this in midair. He went, whoop, and he flipped over and just landed head first in the water as a three-year-old, un unable to really swim by himself with his legs trapped in this thing. 
And so all you see is these little pudgy baby legs sticking out of the water doing this. And so, of course, really quickly, I, you know, swam over there, and I flipped them, you know, right side up. And, of course, it had been like a grand total of four and a half seconds or whatever. But enough that it really, you know, scared him. And, uh, and so he's, you know, doing one of those extended breaths that, where there's silence for a minute, and then there's wailing. And, uh, and I just sort of held him to my chest in order to quiet him with my love, my care for him. Because, you know, that's what happens, right? When you have a baby, you hold them to your chest and they feel safe when you love them. That's the way it works, the way God designed it to be. And it's what he's saying to those of us who face all these hardships in our life. What he says is that I will quiet you with my love, right? I mean, God is, Tim Keller talks about some of the ways that God is talked about in Scripture. And Part of what he says is sometimes God's talked about in these ways that we just wouldn't have felt at all comfortable for in a patriarchal sort of society like Judaism, but rather sometimes God has talked about almost like a like a mom, you know, like like a, almost in this way of like the way we would, would assume that a mom would treat their kids. And part of what God is saying here is He's saying, "I'll hold you to my chest and I'll quiet you with my love." Some of you literally need to hear this today. Um, you need to know that God longs to hold you, to quiet you with his love. Some of you today are hurting in silence, and God says, I, I want to hold you, right? Some of you feel utterly and completely abandoned, and God says, I want to hold you. Some of you, many of you have been betrayed by a parent by a spouse, by a friend, and God says, I want to quiet you with my love. We need to hear that today. Last thing. The last thing that's said in this little section is that God rejoices over you with singing. It says, he will take great delight in you. Let that sink in for a minute. Let the smiling face of God shine down upon you. He will take great delight in you. In his love, he will no longer rebuke you, or he will quiet you with his love. And finally, he says, but we'll rejoice over you with singing. When we were living on Lookout Mountain, uh, May's bedroom uh, was sort of on the back side of the house and it faced out in the backyard. And, uh, and I remember vividly standing in that little room at bedtime. And uh, it was funny because she was very different than Sam. Sam wanted you to hold him until he fell asleep. And if you put him down, he would be unhappy. May, on the other hand, you'd hold her for a few minutes and she'd be like, I'm good. And she would literally point at her crib and she's like, it's, it's go time. I'm ready to go to bed, which was, woo, that was brand new. It was good. We liked it. Anyway, but I remember holding May, and I remember singing the song Agnes Day, which I think originally was Michael W. Smith, and then it was redone by Third Day. Both of those are incredibly ancient now, but maybe you guys remember that, uh, that, that song, For Our Lord God Almighty Reigns. Um, uh, and I'm not going to sing it because I would botch it, but I would stand there, and I would sing this song, Agnes Day, over May. And I remember singing joyfully over her, over my daughter. Now, I, I did it over Levi. I did it over Sam as well. Same song, the Agnes Day. It's probably one of the few songs that I knew enough of the words to sing. But the point was that I was rejoicing over them with singing, right? And that's, again, what God is saying over and over and over and over again in this passage of Scripture. is He's saying, whatever it is that you think about me, however it is that you think I look at you, 
the truth is that I want to be with you. I am with you. I'm with those who are meek and humble and who trust in me alone. I'm with you. You can't leave me. You can't lose me. I'm with you. And not only that, but then God so far goes so far as to say that I delight in you. I want to hold you. I rejoice over you with singing. This should be mind-blowing to those of us who need to hear that this is the God of the Old Testament. This is the God whom we serve. This is the God who we see in Jesus. And so we need to hear this today. If you struggle with, let's just say, addiction, and you can fill in the blank with whatever your particular addiction is, but you meekly and humbly trust in the Lord, then God delights over you. He smiles upon you because he took all of your sin and he placed it on Jesus and punished Jesus in your place. And he took Jesus' righteousness and he put it upon you. So he looks at you and he smiles down upon you. Most of us long to be held and loved by someone. It's a core need to be physically touched in a safe way. Everyone would long to be honored by someone who rejoices over them with singing, even if we felt awkward about it. Most of us, however, gave up hoping for that long ago. And so the question is, okay, BP, you're saying all this stuff about God, or Zephaniah is saying this stuff, or God's speaking through him. Where's the proof that God delights in us? The answer to all of our doubts and all of our fears is Jesus. In John 3.16, Jesus tells Nicodemus, for God my father, so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have eternal life. Jesus says, I'm the proof, right? It's my life and my death and my resurrection. I'm the proof that God delights in you enough that he would allow me to sacrifice myself in order that you might be brought into a relationship with him. Let me take a moment. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for um, your word that speaks um, through our sinful force fields, <laughs> and I ask that your word would make it through to not only to our heads, but to our hearts. Father, I thank you for your word that uh, speaks through our psychological uh, brokenness and our psychological barriers uh, to our minds, but also to our hearts. And Father, I pray that as your word um, makes it through the dusk, the darkness of our hearts and of our minds, that this message would be more true to us, more powerful to us than any other message. And that is, Father, that for those of us who trust in you, that you are with us and that you delight over us, that you rejoice over us with singing, Father. I pray that you would empower us to believe that that's true. I pray that you would empower us, Father, to feel that it is true as well. Father, and that your presence with us and your delight in us would actually be our strength. We pray these things now in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.